Good morning, everyone. I am Wendy Nystrom with Environmental Social Justice. Today's guest, we have Ms. Lauren Packard. She is with the Tony Blair Institute. So welcome, Lauren. Thank you so much, Wendy. Thanks for having me. Anytime. So could you please tell us real quick, I mean, everyone knows who Tony Blair is, former prime minister, but what is the Tony Blair Institute? So uh, after former UK Prime Minister Tony Blair left office, he founded a global institute with, that is headquartered in the UK, but advises governments all over the world, um, over 20 countries in Africa, Southeast Asia, uh, Eastern Europe. And the mandate is technology is changing rapidly. Uh, innovation is changing exponentially fast and policymakers aren't equipped to leverage that. So they need help keeping up. So what the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change does is equip leaders to leverage technological innovation for pro-social ends. And this technology is everything from energy um, pro procurement and production technologies to Web3. So from the mundane to the cutting edge. You know, I had the pleasure of meeting Mr. Blair probably five or six years ago when uh, he was talking about what he was doing. And it is pretty groundbreaking what you guys are doing. I mean, working with different governments and technologies and everything that's groundbreaking. But one thing that you mentioned when we talked previously was frontier tech and what is groundbreaking tech? What does that mean just for the average person to understand? Frontier tech is uh, a very nascent innovation that takes decades of basic science to develop, but has the potential to be truly revolutionary. So one example of this is nuclear fusion. Um, yeah. You know, fission is when energy is created by breaking up um, elements of an atom and Fusion is when energy is created by pushing them together. And fission, we have been employing for decades. Um, but fusion would create no radioactive byproducts and can be created using abundantly available materials like water. So it has the potential to revolutionize the way we use create and procure energy. Um, however, it's, it requires holding um, materials that are hotter than the sun. It requires <laughs> magnets the size of my kitchen. So this frontier tech, uh, it could revolutionize the, you know, the world and our energy portfolio, but it requires decades of investment. Uh, so that's what frontier tech and that's frankly, often not going to happen without government investment because yeah. government can take the long view where the private sector can't. Yeah, it was just released on the news yesterday that we finally were able to smash two atoms together in that fusion and release more energy than was inputted. But as you said, it is you know hotter than the surface of the sun. So it is going to be a challenge to scale that up. Um, and as you said, with government investment, but another thing is governments can stand in the way a little bit. So um, how do you guys work with them to kind of move things quickly? Because we, we need a little more momentum behind us. Yeah, that's a really fair characterization. So governments have a few tools in their toolbox to either 
incentivize development of these technologies or create markets for them uh, or you know create the environment that's conducive to their success so what they can do is they can subsidize it uh, for example the inflation reduction act includes billions of dollars of production tax credits for clean energy yeah. so that's um, a tool that governments can use to incentivize more manufacturing and production, you know, and one caveat for the Inflation Reduction Act or one um, requirement to obtain these subsidies is that manufacturing has to be done in the US. Yep. So it incentivizes clean energy and, um, you know, there's tax credits for solar and hydrogen and all of these um, exciting technologies. And then uh, governments can also use regulations. So for example, in California, uh, car manufacturers are required to sell a certain percentage of zero emission vehicles, which means cars that run off electricity or in the future hydrogen. And that's uh, a result of regulators here in California that were really forward thinking. And in the 90s, before this technology even existed, they said, you know what, we're gonna require the automakers to sell a certain percentage of zero emission vehicles. We don't know how they're going to do it, but uh, we'll work with them. And if it proves impossible, we'll give them another year, another year, another year. Um, so that's another bucket. Um, then you, you also have taxes. So the higher taxes on gas and other fossil fuel um, products, the less likely consumers are to use those and it drives consumers more towards um, electric vehicles and then finally of education so educating everyone um, citizens practitioners about which choices are best for uh, people on the planet so there's the that's like the four big buckets we like to think of government action you know, I'm glad that you mentioned with um, the regulatory incentives and tax incentives, because sometimes people do need that little push from the regulatory environment to, you know, we really do need to make change happen and make change happen quickly. And I think it goes without saying, folks, petroleum, burning petroleum and fossil fuels is a bad idea. The pollution, the particulate matter is very damaging. We've seen that. There shouldn't be much argument in favor of that. But um, one thing you touched on very briefly is my favorite topic, hydrogen. We're seeing a lot more with hydrogen lately. Um, can you talk about any developments going on there? Yeah, so hydrogen and, you know, a lot of these technologies, um, like you say, have been around for a while, but there's not the economic picture doesn't mm -hmm. make sense. Um, yeah. So, you know, some countries, Japan subsidizes hydrogen uh, a lot. I think here in the US, the Inflation Reduction Act subsidizes hydrogen uh, to a certain extent. So we'll be seeing more of that. There have been some uh, ferries, ships, um, freight trucks that are now running off of hydrogen energy. Yeah. Um, there's a new technology where uh, large truck, semi-truck can go to a charging station and get um, a module swapped in and out in under a minute that oh. turns it from a diesel truck to a diesel hydrogen hybrid truck. Uh, 
Um, wow. So there are some exciting innovations there. I think in terms of um, the benefits of science and innovation policy and how mindful policy can help us reap all the benefits from these technologies, uh, nuclear fusion, which you know you mentioned, there's this big breakthrough, is another good example. So uh, you know when we put in all this money, um, you know, the government can also subsidize new technologies. So in the UK, the government is subsidizing, um, they are pledging over 200 million pounds towards a uh, nuclear fusion plant that is slated to open in 2024. We likely won't be able to scale that for another 10, 15 years, but from nuclear fusion, innovations, we have developed advances in fMRI technology, so functional magnetic resonance imaging for healthcare. We've developed new light bulbs. We've um, developed, uh, yeah, microplasma lighting um, and integrated silicon chips and created new pipelines for scientists and basic research. So with the right policies, you can have this forward looking lens, but you can also accrue other benefits, uh, not just jobs and innovation and you know economic benefits, but like further reaching spin-off effects if we have this bird's eye view, but enable interdisciplinary uh, actions to like really get all the benefits from this new research. And one of the things um, we often talk about with respect to, I mean, there's a ton of new information coming out, a ton of new technologies are being developed and created and scaled up. But you always talked about, or you enlightened me to the fact that with our energy transition, our grid needs a lot of work. And that is all infrastructure, and that is all pretty much government regulated. Is that correct? Yes, the grid is um, aging. It hasn't been updated for decades, and now with everyone you know buying a Tesla or a Rivian, it's putting a lot more strain on the grid. Yeah, um, it's an energy regulation is. Uh, it's a highly regulated industry and the state regulates the wholesale or the, the retail. So the state regulates like when consumers buy from the grid, but the federal government regulates the wholesale. Also like the plants going um, that are sending energy in across state lines. Uh, and so it's, it's a very, complicated regulatory regime it's a lot of these new technologies like um, if you have a, a battery car the vision for the future is that you would be able to link it up to the grid and sell your energy back at night so you're a prosumer you're a consumer but then you also create energy like through your solar panels on the roof or in your car and then you can sell it back to the grid sell it to your neighbor um but the regulatory regime right now is not set up for that so yeah. it stands in the way of us really leveraging the possibilities of this new technology 
What's been your experience with that? Personally, um, I mean, I know that a lot of people do want to do um, where you basically you have your electric car and it can charge a building and vice versa. The building can electrify the car and when the car is not in use and charging, it can electrify the building. Right now, though, there are a ton of warranties on cars that will be nullified if you do that. So step one is working with the automotive industry to remove that limitation. And then also, I mean, every state's different. Every county's different. Every city is going to be a little bit different. I have no idea if there's anything in the works with respect to a federal regulation where we can all just work together. Um, that would be great if we had one rule to follow. But every state's going to be different. Some states do not believe in renewable energy. They are petroleum-based still. And that kind of leads me to some of the risks that um, people love to bring up, people who are still pro-petroleum, is they always say, well, with electric, you're still mining ores. You're still mining things out of the ground. And there's risk with that. Um, there are consequences, of course. But I think what you guys are doing, specifically at the Tony Blair Institute, is kind of guiding and leading government entities to realize that the overall benefit is better to focus on renewable technologies rather than if we just keep doing things the same old, same old, same old, we will never change. We will never get better. And right now we are in a climate crisis. Um, things are looking bad. And we, you know, the, the earth is resilient. We saw that during COVID when everything, when a lot of manufacturers shut down, everything cleared up nicely. It's possible to get there. So, um, what do you see as the potential forward thinking mechanism that could get perhaps everybody on board and perhaps stop some of these naysayers with the, with the risks involved and the mining involved. And yes, nothing's perfect, but we got to get there. I totally agree with you in this situation. Perfect is the enemy of good. Um, yes. <laughs> we need a rapid, just transition and, you know, policymakers do have to weigh the impacts of mining, which, you know, mine tailings if not properly disposed of can be quite toxic um you know there, yeah. there's the potential for human rights violations um but there is a lot that gives me hope um there's a company here in the u.s called form that is developing iron ore batteries oh. uh, so iron is a lot more readily available unless um, mining is much less toxic than mining cobalt and cobalt is yeah. only available in a couple countries, so uh, we don't want to be reliant on the Democratic Republic of Congo for all of our rare earth minerals. Um, they also use child labor, which is a social justice problem. <laughs> totally. Um, so I would say uh, there's we are going to need a lot of rare earth minerals, but through innovation, we can diversify potentially and use different minerals. Um, there are also some entrepreneurs in China that are experimenting with batteries um, that rely on even water and, and, and other minerals that are not so hard to come by. Um, we also could do a better job of recycling. Yeah. Um, yeah. We could have a more circular economy where all of the rare earth minerals and the copper from our electronics, we, we use them. Um, E-waste is a problem. You are absolutely right. Yeah. So that's something where I could see a, if there was a regulation that this is a thought experiment, this is a pie in the sky. Uh, but if 
computers manufacturers were required by law to recycle all of you know if there was a serial number on all computers and you used that some kind of technology could be blockchain could be something different to trace it through the value chain and then the producers were responsible for recycling it you know that could help with That's that problem but it's you know I'm, I'm really optimistic and i think harping on you know the, the negatives the challenges are also opportunities absolutely i mean one of my favorite einstein quotes is in the middle of difficulty lies opportunity or i'm paraphrasing but yes that is essentially what the message was is we can't overcome this we can figure it out we're you know we are inherently smart people <laughs> hopefully totally well and in the what 19th century we all relied on whale oil and yeah. we shifted that paradigm to the petroleum paradigm and that's not serving us anymore so uh you know as a species we're creative we're resilient and i'm really uh i'm optimistic that you know we have the tools we need and leaders are starting to pay attention you know the biden administration has been a lot better on this obviously than the trump administration but they also have a very strong focus on environmental justice and you know making sure that the risks are distributed equitably but also yeah. the benefits um yeah the benefits definitely outweigh the negatives there is no question about that and the technologies there we have people like you promoting it and you know what you do working directly with government policy public policy that's not easy that is not an easy job to have um you deal with some i'm assuming a multitude of personalities <laughs> yeah well uh so some of what i do right now is more thought leadership um you know if I, we were to design a city that could um feed itself because climate change is going to result in issues with crops and supply chain like what would that look like um but then some of it some of my colleagues do yeah client um services with government clients and everyone has um a different agenda um, yeah everyone has a different goal especially um elected officials there's the layer of politics uh and then there's also the you know my background is as a lawyer so i'm always looking at the legislation regulations and how those fit together so okay. when you put all of those factors together yeah it can get a little complicated um, but you were navigating it quite well you guys are doing <laughs> awesome i mean I'm a huge fan of everything you guys are doing, and I am very excited to see what the future holds for you guys. Is there anything you can share with us, maybe how people could get involved and help or um, things that people could expect in the future? So we had a presence at COP27 uh, supporting African nations who are looking for more financing for not only their energy transition, but adaptation. So. Yeah we're already feeling the effects of climate change and especially some countries in the global south um, are being pretty hard hit so this uh idea we've been working with in the 
end of the 20th century and the beginning of the 21st century about who bears the responsibility for mitigation for addressing emissions, you know, that's still going on. But now it's also a question of who's going to pay for seawalls and weathering and, um, you know, moving communities to higher ground. So I think that will be an area of focus for our client governments, adaptation, um, also financing. Um, so a lot of our client governments have a vast natural resources like solar capacity, geothermal capacity, but um, need help with financing to be able to really leverage those. Yeah, totally. Uh, so I think that that's going to be a big focus for our client governments and then also um, international cooperation. You know, for example, in Kenya, there's a lot of geothermal capacity, but there's no one to buy it. So if you go out across the border, you know, there are more um, potential consumers there. So it's really creating a copacetic international playing field where we can create a market to leverage all of this uh, potential. That's a lot of work. Negotiating between countries for energy is uh, that's a challenge. No. <laughs> do you have any experience with that? Or do you have what have been the main uh, negotiations in Beverly Hills around? Um, I, I just try to spread the word. And when people... Uh, tell me that I'm wrong. I just try to be as friendly as possible and explain that there's somewhere in the middle that we can both meet. And there is always an answer that can make everybody not perfectly happy, but moderately happy. Yeah, that's also challenging. Um, you know, especially, you know, I feel so strongly about climate change. It gets a lot of emotions wrapped up in it, especially when communities are suffering. Um, so having that. Yeah. Diplo diplomacy is really useful. It, it takes time to hone that down. Let me tell you, a few years ago, if you asked me that same question, I would have probably been a little bit more dramatic. I've learned to rein it in because <laughs> sometimes people just say things to get a rise out of you or to make you upset. And sometimes you just have to learn to say it's okay to disagree. Um, sometimes, uh, yeah, sometimes people just want to pick a fight. And my best advice for that is don't get pulled into it. You just have to say, okay, um, I'm not going to convince you today, but I'm more than willing to come to the table again and have more discussions. And uh, hopefully there's a meeting of the minds. That's all you can do. Yeah. And I think there's also work we can do with um, translating some of our uh, goals, opportunities, challenges into languages that other stakeholders can understand. So, uh, you know, economics is a big one. Oh, yes. Uh, it just doesn't, you know, there have been, a, there's been a lot of um, great reporting from like ProPublica and um, Frack Tracker and, you know, the subsidies that we give to the fossil fuel industry, they, that needs to end. Sorry. That one I'm kind of stubborn on. That The subsidies for fossil fuels needs to be scaled back a bit. And also I recently learned how much water they use. And since California is in such a heavy drought, maybe we um, 
maybe we have those discussions another day. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I agree with you. Sub subsidies need to end. I mean, it just doesn't make economic sense. Like we are yeah. propping up this dying industry. Yeah, yeah. You know, that is, that is very well stated. Um, so closing out, um, how can people find you? Uh, how can they get involved with Tony Blair Institute? Maybe you can look for volunteers to help you. Um, so I would urge everyone to follow um, the Tony Blair Institute on Twitter. So it's at Institute GC. Um, also on LinkedIn. Uh, it's the Tony Blair Institute for Global Change. And, you know, a lot of what we do is advising governments, but if you have um, a new technology, an innovative new idea, please reach out to me personally. Uh, my email address is lpackard at institute.global, um, or you can find me on social media through Wendy. And I would just really encourage you to get involved in your local community. Um, you know, we've talked a lot about tech that's 20 years in the future and um, conversations and negotiations that are occurring in Africa, but there's a lot that you can do in your own community, uh, whether it's joining a green energy co-op or yeah. growing some of your own food or switching to a heat pump um yeah. it's and voting of course you know this is <laughs> not, uh, you know we as consumers and individuals are not to blame for the crisis and we can't fix it ourselves um no. structures of power so there's a, a really wide range of actions we can take, which is exciting. Oh, right. absolutely. I always tell people every little bit helps. Minor changes in your daily activities that will make a great impact over time. So don't belittle yourself for doing small things, folks. Everything matters. And on that, oh, do you have one more thing? Um, yeah, everything matters, but I also, uh, yeah, wouldn't don't feel guilty if you can't do everything, you know, everyone's living their own lives and it's, everyone's got a lot on their plate, but also if you elect people, uh, you know, that have your same views, you might get more wins like, you know, now oil drilling, which as you mentioned earlier, leads to asthma and all these other um, illnesses from all the particulate matter. It's been banned in Los Angeles County. And yes. that is a huge win. That's really exciting. Um, and that, just happened because people in the neighborhood banded together and uh, communicated what they wanted. Exactly. I mean, that's, <laughs> I hate to bring up my own trademark, but no shaming, no blaming. Every little bit helps and every little bit does help. So on that, guys, I am Wendy Nystrom with Environmental Social Justice. And thank you, Lauren, so much for all of your insight and all the work you're doing with the Tony Blair Institute. I love what you guys are doing. You're awesome. Thanks for having me. Have a good one. Catch you Thank later. You too. Take care, guys. Bye-bye.